out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist and uh, songwriter, the one and only John Douglas of the Trash Can Sinatras. But the big part he's also released a new solo album that is coming out this month october 2023 available from all good record shops also you can stream it online i will put links in the bio below the track uh, the album is 11 tracks including a prefab sprite cover called we let the stars go so this is the interview you're going to find out all about john in this so um, i won't give any more introduction though i could uh, go on for ages so um anyway after several minutes of interesting but casual chat we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years john tell us all about your early formative years a musical awakening really uh yes i mean i'm very similar i'm slightly older i was born in late 63 december so i'm the same you know started to notice music in the early 70s Mostly visually, there wasn't a lot of records in the house, so it would be Top of the Pops would be would be a big thing for me, which kind of blew my mind. I thought these people were like from a different planet. It was a, uh, you know, took, took you out of the ordinary, that sort of stuff. In our, in our house, there was a few records. One of them was the Bowie. We had the, the Laughing Gnome single, <laughs> where the B-side was uh, the Gospel According to Tony Day. Very, you know... Just full of character that record, and that was that single was in our house, and also nineteenth nervous breakdown. That was the two singles that were in the house, and there wow. was two LP, two LPs. One was Ravel's Bolero, and one was the uh, Tommy Makeham and the Clancy Brothers live. Right. So, but that was the kind of four records that were in the house. That was one of those old radiograms or stereograms. You know, it had a kind of radio as part of it, as well as a little section where a record player. So yeah, oh. it, it, it wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of music in the house when I was growing up. There was turns out I discovered later on there's quite a lot of music in my family, my, my grandfather's side. But initially growing up, it was just things on TV, and and I, you know I, I fell in love with it, with the stuff on the suite, and I should say who else? Queen were a big you know, visually that they they sort of blew my mind very early on, and then I started listening to the radio. You know, got got to listen to the the kind of evening radio stuff. Yes, well, I know that on the was it Sunday afternoon evening, it was always a big thing with the countdown to the charts, which was in those yeah. days it was quite exciting because records moved very slowly, didn't they? Either up or down. Yeah. Would get like oh, it's gone three places up, and you'd you'd literally throw your I don't know. Jabs yeah, it was like uh, victories. You know, if it was someone you liked, and they were they were you know overtaking someone that you couldn't be bothered, but you were you were kind of elated by it. You know, there was like a. And, yes. You know, a bit like a football team nowadays, or you know, you were related. I, th- I think I got I, I got really blown away when the, the punk music thing started to happen, and when those sort of records started to hit the charts, it felt it really felt like victories because they were quite, you know, frowned upon by mainstream sort of society. So, yeah, so it was a yeah, it was that was my my big sort of formative time of, of delving into records. Before that happened, I would I would. I would buy kind of rock stuff, you know, maybe like Thin Lizzy and maybe Genesis and 
my big brother had a lot of good records. He'd things like the early Bob Dylan albums and uh, Man Machine Kraftwerk and Bob Marley and Joni Mitchell. So there was a lot of sort of classic records that started to come into the house in the sort of mid seventies from my big brother's side of things. Yeah, and I that's... would I would sort of listen to that stuff and, and got got influenced by a lot of that pretty early on. Yeah, that's quite interesting because because my parents, I mean, you know, came from the countryside in East Anglia, as you, right. as you were experiencing yesterday, um, you know, just a village. But when they were kind of that working class family that never, people who never borrowed money. So if they needed anything, they earned it, saved, you know, served, yes. saved it, and then they bought something. So I think when they got married in the late 50s, they, they sold everything they could, including the record player and any of my dad's records. So a record player only appeared in the kind of probably the early 70s. And a bit like you, there mm. were two records in the house, but um, which weren't, yeah. which weren't, well, there was, there was a couple of quite good ones. There was Top of the Poppers Sing the Carpenters, which I was obsessed with. Oh, fantastic. I know. I didn't realise it was not the Carpenters for a few years. And then it was, uh, uh, was it Roger Whittaker as well, which I kind of, oh, yeah. obsessed with. A few other really naff ones, like the Great War themes and things like that, mm. which we, mm. you know, the 633 Squadron and um, oh, yeah, the yeah, Battle yeah. of Britain were still kind of a motive. But then my brother was seven years older and a bit like having that cool older brother. He was in the prog rock and mostly yeah. prog rock, actually. <laughs> it was just prog- Yes, and Genesis and Wishbone Ash, Barkley, James Harvest. But he did have Deep Purple and Black Sabbath tucked in there. No seven-inch singles. They were forbidden in his life. It was just okay. and uh, <laughs> And the plastic sleeve that he bought. He obviously became an accountant. You can see that was going to be his path. He did also have <laughs> the Beatles, Sergeant Pepper and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which he bought, which again, oh, in, the, in that kind of early to mid 70s, those records were just like, you know, there was no cultural context or significance at that point. They were yeah. just, you know, and I'd sneak into his room and play those records religiously and be completely mesmerized with the work of, well, even the solo work of Rick Wakeman, in fact. So um, that was great. Yeah. You know, I mean, so. I think those uh, the prog rock. It's a, I mean, it's a kind of people sniff at it nowadays. But in the kind of mid seventies, that was the sort of outsider music. You know, you would never hear that anywhere. So the kind of the, like that your eccentric people that were in your school or whatever that they'd be into that. So it was a sort of a badge of honour in a way because you were you're a bit of an outsider if you're into that stuff. And some of it still stands up. You know, the, yeah. I mean, the it's, sort of it... mid, mid, the Gabriel stuff with Genesis is lovely, and there's the odd. I mean, there's pretty, I love living in the past, the Jethro Tull song. They're a funny band. I can't take much of them, but there's the odd thing that just shines. Some of the yeah. things, you know. But yeah, the time, context is everything. And a lot of that gets lost these days when people look at the past. But I think there was a, there was a kind of, you know, eccentric weirdo badge of honour if you're into that stuff in like 74, 75, 76 even. Yes, absolutely. And actually, interesting with Jethro Tull. They're my, they're one. I know autumn and winter's on its way because I love Jethro, early Jethro Tull. Mm, yeah. um, those kind of particular albums, which, um, yeah, Living in the Past and Songs from the Wood and Benefit and Minstrels in the yeah. Valley. You know, th- those records I just think are awesome. And, um, you know, yeah, my brother I, would have them right beside the Kraftwerk records and the Bob Marley records. And, and at that age, you don't even think twice. You just think it's all music and it's all different and fascinating and, and got character. I mean, loaded with character, those things. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, it's it's a great chapter in music. So when did a guitar and a musical instrument, because mostly people, you know, they have fantasies of being a football player and possibly on stage, you know, but mostly, you know, yeah. air guitar in front of a mirror. But what, what, what drove you to actually pick an or buying a guitar? 
Uh, it was uh, later on in life. I didn't get it until I was about 21. I was, uh, I'd been living in London for about a year and a half and I'd made some friends. One of them was a guy, I worked in a McDonald's restaurant and the, the, one of the managers was, one of the chef managers was from Manchester and he was hugely into music and he, he sort of saw that I was. So we would, you know, we'd go to shows and chat, chat, chat away and I ended up sharing my flat and it would just be playing records and playing records and playing records. And as a, when I was, when I got to 21, late 21, I was going to move back home to Scotland and he said, listen, give me 50 quid. This is one of the shifts. He says, give me 50 quid. There's a couple of buskers outside. They're, they're from Iran and they've been there for a while and I know if, if you give them 50 quid, they'll get you a nice guitar, a sturdy, cheap guitar because you should learn guitar. And I sort of says, okay. And I thought I'd, sort of kiss goodbye to 50 quid but the, the guys came back the two Iranian fellas and, with this guitar and, and the, the Manchester guy had bought me this little book called the Little Red Song Book so th- but the size of the palm of your hand and it was full of sort of uh, labour union union sort of folk songs like oh, yeah. uh, the, the one I can remember is as soon as this pub closes the revolution starts and at the back of that book there was a little page that had six chord diagrams of all the chords, the kind of, you know, the six that you, you need to know. So he sort of equipped me with, with that. One week says, because you're into music, you should do it. You should, you should start playing it. And from then on, it never really left my side, the guitar. I got fascinated with it. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So when you, when 79, you were hit 16, did you stay on for sixth form at that stage or did you leave school? Yeah, there was an extra year. It wasn't sixth form. I didn't pass enough exams. I had to go back in, in a year and do, do redo things with a view to which was great because it was a much quieter year you know a lot of the kind of crazies had left and the disruptive people had left so and you were left you were left to your own devices and there was a room at school where there was a record player and you could bring in music and you know I'd hear a lot of things that other folks would bring in I mean this was at the time that we, there was like a couple of big stranglers fans and they would bring in their stuff and as well as the, the rock guys and and every other week there'd be a different single out that somebody would bring in yeah. so it was so I stayed on at school, but it was a much more relaxed version of school that, that final year. Yes, you, the, yeah, the, the, yes, those kids at school that um, you just know they're going, it's going to end badly, isn't it? Um, did, so did you well, I don't know. See- I mean, some folk are, I mean, I was speaking of this the other day. Some folk, their peak in life is, is at secondary school. You know, they're the popular guys, whether it's through looking good or through threat. <laughs> You know, so uh, and and maybe that's as a kind of sadness to that when I think back to a lot of those characters that left. You know, they were big, popular guys at school and loud and stuff. And maybe that was that was as good as it got for them. You know, yes. having that sort of audience and things. So there's a kind of melancholy when I think of those those fellas. But as I say, the, the last year when they were gone, it was it was mostly just kind of well-read guys that were hanging out and people that were into music. And there wasn't nice. as many lessons. So you, so you could go to school and sit in this room and just chat about. You know, everything. Yeah, it was a much nicer, uh, much nicer more. moment. So, did you then yeah. go on to sixth forming a new university, or did you head no. down? No, no, kind of didn't pass. I mean, the thought of university wasn't really on the cards for, for, the, for the people I was, I was, I was kind of in with. You know, music sort of took over everything. I, I think maybe more so than everyone else. I could, I could sit in, in the kind of more duller records uh, uh, lessons at school. I could. I could go and sit, and in my head, I'd put the, the needle down on side one of 
such and such an LP, and I would just play it in my head all the way through and turn it over and play it in my head all the way through. And, and then, but that time the lesson was close to being over. Yeah. So, sort of like academia, I kind of went by the wayside. I would, you know, I would still read and I was interested in the world and history and stuff, but passing exams was, it was a very difficult, difficult thing. So, no, I left school and, and it was just as Thatcherism was kicking in. So, the west coast of Scotland, even our parents' jobs were, were kind of disappearing. So, there was not a it was a funny period in in in, in that area. I mean, it's still quite a a, a a lot of unemployment up there. Not so much, but back then, there was because the kids were kind of leaving school and the, the jobs weren't around, and the parents were kind of getting to that stage. There wasn't a lot of pressure to go and do things because there just wasn't much around. Yes, but I ended. I did end up going down to London after after a, a year or two of that, uh, just to. I don't know, just to start again and, and, and have a kind of year zero yeah. thing. Well, it's kind of interesting because, you know, 79, Thatcher gets in, we have the Falkland War, then we have the miner strike, and then Green and Common, we think we're all going to get nuked, and it was all over. And there was a huge amount of unemployment. I think well, the reason there were so many indie bands was um, mm. one of them was just everybody just was signing on. Most uh, Not everyone, but a lot of people signed on. There was Job Seekers Allowance, Enterprise Allowance Scheme, so... You know, you could have. Yeah, a, it was a, a very kind of. If you had something to do, a passion for something, and you could, you didn't have a lot of funds to to buy equipment and stuff, but you could devote your time to it. Yes, and, we had time. This, we had time, didn't we? And happy, yeah. hour, happy hour yeah. in the pub. Yes, <laughs> the odd happy hour in the pub. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> from five to seven um mm. so then you know that musically you know they're that po you know the punk post-punk then there was the the electronic you know the blitz kids mm. new romantics then 83 massive year the smiths appear you know indie pop is suddenly the big thing the june brides the wedding present um the wolf Hounds, all those sort of bands did the smiths mm. have much of an impact on you at that stage did your mate yeah you know, i mean absolutely it felt to me like and the, the post-punk period was was sort of where everything seemed to be going. You know, when I first discovered the punk records, that's when probably like the things like Joy Division and the Bunny Men and, and the Liverpool stuff, the Teardrop Explodes, and then the Two Tone stuff was coming out. So it seemed as every other month the the, the whole country was blooming with these wonderful uh, bands that were reflecting the area they came up with, or they were they were otherworldly, and they'd be played on John Peel, and it seemed like a very very just blossoming thing, and uh, I think when the Smiths came, it was as if they they were the kind of last of that that sort of bastion. I mean, a lot of the band, bands you mentioned there, I don't th they, I think paled in comparison to the Smiths, and uh, things sort of shifted just for me in my head. You know, I, I thought, uh, and and the kind of there was a different sonic things started happening in the eighties as well. Production got a bit weird, which I don't I didn't know then, but now when I look back on it, I think, oh, that's right, the sound of records started changing because studios started getting digitized and stuff. But well, yeah, we had, we had the, yeah, we had the Trevor Trevor Horn production, didn't we? That yeah, which of... I mean, in the hands of a master, that's brilliant. But when it gets to the hands of you know your stock kick and Waterman or pretty much everybody apart from Trevor Horn, it, it just became quite a harsh, harsh thing. And, and I didn't really notice it at the time. I didn't know what it was, just things weren't as appealing as they were. 
no, I think no. in my head I'm quite a, a quite a traditionalist. I like to hear well, real musicians think, playing I together. I think those those records are dated really badly, you know. Which the, yes, yes, you kind of need to remix them. There might be something there, but that kind of yeah. that sound is so so horrible. It's very harsh, right? But it was the new thing, so the guys were trying it out, and and it was the studio people were trying it out more than the actual musicians. So it was a funny, funny combination. But the Smiths were they were kind of in the long line of of of. The stuff that I adored about the kind of post-punk thing was British people making music with that was literate, and it was and it was funny. Like I loved the Injury, and I loved Marky e. Smith, and and the, the guy for the Gang of Four. There was so many brilliant lyricists come out of that period, and and Morrissey was a fantastic lyricist. So they were they became a shining light, and and that's always what I've tried to do. And me and the boys and the Trascans have always tried to do be literate in your you know and your your lyrical approach. As well yes. as you know, interested in your musical approach. So yeah, they were huge, huge influence. Massive, yeah. So so the enemy, the because we had the gatekeepers, didn't we? we had John Peel. We also had James mm. Long, Kid Jensen, but we had yes. definitely John Peel. But there was also the three weekly music papers and Record Mirror as well. So there was a lot of opportunity for bands to sort of, yes, get off that, you know, get up the, um, get on the. The ladder. <laughs> yeah, you could you could go from playing the pubs in Manchester to the mainstream pretty quickly if you had the talent and the drive. You yes. know, and, there was and, a uh, there was a circuit around the country, wasn't there? Of yeah, there was nights. a circuit, and there was a there was a, a microscope looking at it. You know, and as you say, the tastemakers had taste. We had our own versions up in Scotland. We did, there's a guy called Billy Sloan that had a very similar approach to John Peel. Whenever bands were coming through Glasgow, he would get them in to do the studio and do sessions and interview them and was always playing the latest stuff. Yes. So, yeah, did, you, was, did you have much connection with Glasgow at that stage? Because I did an interview with uh, who, who ran the, was it the Health, Hellfire Club, which was this small little studio place. I think it only lasted about a year, but um, she was in yeah, a band. No, the, the Hellfire Club, the guy... One of the David, majors. David Henderson, I think. Yeah, David, he does our sound. Our live, he's been doing a Transcans live sound for years, David Henderson. He's a bit of a, a kind of a Zelig type figure in, in Scotland. Anything of quality after 77, or David's always associated. He does, he does Teenage Fan Club sound. He did the early Orange Juice shows and Simple Mind stuff and Aztec Carol. He's, he should write a book, actually. He's one of those fellows that would, that would uh, he would tell it well. He's got a good tongue in his head, David, as well. Yeah. But the Hellfire, well, the, Glasgow was a, a, at that point, uh, in my early days of going up to Glasgow, I'd go up to, go, to gigs at the Glasgow Apollo, travelling up from Irvine, which meant like a, maybe a 40-minute train journey and then a 40-minute train journey back. And you might have to leave early because the last train was at, say, half 10 and the gig was going on to quarter to 11. And you got to the Apollo, and which was quite a big venue at the time, and just get deafened by hugely loud, loud music. And that was a bit of a life changing thing as well, going to a show for the first time, you know, and going up to the big city. Yes, you know, absolutely. On the train, those old, those old trains that had little compartments with the the the, the, the one bar heater, and the, you know, stinking of stinking of cigarettes, and going up to, going up there and and wandering the streets of the big bad city, and. Then, wandering into this room and suddenly being deafened by an hour and a half by the skids or the jam or the undertones. Yes. Really life-changing stuff. Fantastic. Totally fantastic. But later on when the Orange Juice stuff happened, uh, the Hellfire Club, uh, no, I think I was in London when that stuff was going on. I loved the records. The Blue Boy single was a, was a real brilliant record, you know, at the time and still stands up as a 
you know, stunning, stunning first single. And did you ever get to meet the famous Alan Hall? You know, this no, thing? no, he seems like a bit of a. I don't know the, the characters like that. I, I kind of, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if he'd get on. I think that's that's much more. His attitude seemed to be much more about style over content, and uh, yes. the the rules. You know, you've got to follow the rules of whatever he thought was cool. Or, you know, that kind of thing makes me run a mile. I just think, God, you know, I, I knew people like that in my town, and they were always, you know just the death of anything creative and turns <laughs> out you know they didn't last very long as always just thing the band all the bands that went through it they were grateful for the attention at the time but they all moved on pretty quick yes. to get away from that and try and get into getting an audience and getting a you know being being a proper musician so yeah these people are good as cat as catalysts i suppose i but suppose it's like Malcolm, i suppose it's like malcolm mclaren you know you know something's going to happen but it might not be particularly good or healthy <laughs> Yeah, well, he's again another. He did make some brilliant records himself. Uh, you know the duck rock stuff, and uh, the I love the the opera things he did as well. He's a bit of a he's a real one off. I think characters like Alan Horn would would aspire to be like that. <laughs> <laughs> so how did your how did the the band sort of get together? Because in eighty eighty six, which is a very important period of music, because the NME brought out that cassette, the C eighty six cassette, which had mm. twenty two tracks you know with you know people like the primitives and the mccarthy and the wedding present and the shop assistants and people like that so 86 was a in indie was at its height wasn't it really so how did the the band form at this stage because were you in different locations or had you all started to gravitate to the same neighborhood yeah well the the town where we formed is is relatively small it's a place called irvin and it's on the west coast of scotland so around about probably 84, 85, 86, there was a, quite a healthy music scene. And it was kind of post-punky. You know, there was a band called Rebel Dance that was like a Clash-type band. There was a, another band called the Dead Souls that was like a Joy division band. And, and it didn't, they didn't last very long, but, the, you know, there was a real enthusiasm and, and a kind of authenticity. You know, kids try to, try to do, do what they loved. And uh, there was a couple of venues to play. There was like a, a fanzine. And uh, I was in various bands. It was a band called Easter Parade I was in. And they were sort of, I suppose, kind of postcard a little bit. You know, we knew our major seven chords. And, and the, the, the the notion was to be melodic and not really be rock. A bit like the Smiths, you know, there was a kind of anti, not anti-blues thing, but you didn't, none of us were skilled enough to play that thing, but never really listened to kind of blues-influenced stuff. It was more melodic guitars that, that we fell in love with. So, uh, I was in and out of various bands, and then I got asked. There was a covers band called Trash Can Sinatras that would maybe do a show every six months just for beer money kind of thing, and they'd be good. Uh, you know, it had a lot of spirit. And I joined them, and after a while of, of various members coming and going, there was a chemistry arrived when myself and Frank and Paul and Stephen eventually came on board and and we just started writing together and the very first time we sat down in the living room it was a bedroom actually frank's bedroom downstairs uh, we played some things we all chipped in some some ideas and before you knew it we had something that we, we we loved and we knew it was better than what we could do on our own you know we gave each other a real confidence boost and from that day on to this day that's that's kind of been the same with yes. fans of what we bring out of each other and 
And it was a treasure, you know, having been in bands before that, that was the kind of dream that you'd meet people and instantly there'd be a chemistry and instantly you'd be productive. And that's what started happening when, when we got when we got together. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you kind of cope musically at this stage? Because, you know, 87, the Smiths break up, then there's that kind of the next wave of kind of young teenagers who want their soundtrack and, and dance music started to appear, didn't it? And Ecstasy came in. So, you know, a few bands that did the jump, like the Happy Mondays and Soup Dragons, but there was definitely, you know, a move towards the, in you know, the, the sort of more dance and, you know, ecstasy, <laughs> ecstasy crowd. I don't know. I mean, there's some bands that... that, that or some artists can do that where they look at what's going on and they'll attempt to mould whatever they've got going into whatever's whatever's suddenly the new thing. And sometimes that's like a square peg in a round hole and sometimes it really works. Yes. But for us, for us, we just we just always ploughed our own furrow and never really as much as you would buy the NME and stuff and you'd kind of cock an ear to what's going on, it was never anything we thought of of something to not to, to follow or worry about, you know, we just we just had this chemistry that we liked. We liked what we did ourselves. We liked this melodic guitar, and we liked lyrics, and we liked arrangement, and we liked to have fun, and 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 also, you know, convey an emotion. And and from that day, we never really bothered thinking about trains or that. And it served as well, you know. We, we you know we got signed to a label, and we they stuck with us for. For a good ten years, you know, and 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 we were just ploughing our own little furrow. So yeah, the idea of whatever musical movements kicking around didn't really didn't really um, come come into our world in any in any massive way. We just observed it kind of cynically, I suppose. Yes, but go, and, but but Go Discs were definitely mm. was a, was a great label for you, wasn't it? And it it did have a oh, good yeah. roster because it had the it was a great people. Fun. Like um, Fra- the Frank and Walters, they had the Bathers, didn't they? The House Martins, you know, it was it was an ideal label. So you, did did you have much of a bid in war at that stage, or was it quite straightforward? Well, it was initially, I think initially, yeah, there was other labels interested in us, but Goldisks was the best fit, and they were the nicest people as well. They really, they really got what we did, and they got that we were kind of, you know, not fully formed. We we had a bunch of songs we hadn't really played live a lot, so we were pretty raw. So they and they they said we, they would be with us for the long haul. They just saw the kind of germ of of, of what we were doing and 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 nurtured it. Yes. And we we signed. I think we signed. It was a good two years before we bought out a record. They sent us out on tour. We went up to the Highlands and toured, and we got our own studio place and just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And that's what we we're all about. And that kind of that's what we've always been all about. Just writing songs live has always been a bit. Of a, of, well, I, I don't know, a, a, like secondary, the, the main thing was making the records. Yes. The Goldust was a great fit for us because, I mean, Billy Bragg was a, was a huge kind of hero, you know, for, for his approach, again, basic, uh, very basic approach of, and, and great lyrics and, and melodic and interesting guitar kind of stuff. Uh, so that he was the major one of, of, of that kind of appealed that made us kind of think about the label being being worthy and and and, and kind of honest, you know. 
they, we would treat as well. They wouldn't kind of shaft us. No. But the, the major thing was the personnel. They really got us and they really invested the time in us and, and promised all that. So so it was great that we went with them. I don't know what it would have been like if we'd went with some of the kind of more major labels that were interested. They were, they were a major label eventually, but yeah, yeah, we did the right thing. And you you recorded the album. This was in, you, you did it in, was it Shabby, Shabby, Shabby Road Studios? Yeah, in, in that Kiel was our studio, right. Was that yeah. your studio that you'd built? Yeah, no, we didn't build it. There was a Comalix just about 10 miles outside of Irvine. And uh, th- th- there was a guy called Clark Thorley that had built this studio out of like old tenement flats, high ceilinged, beautiful big rooms, but they had no neighbours. There was a Chinese restaurant downstairs and a charity shop. Apart from that, there was no one around. So the so noise wasn't an issue. And uh, he'd built up this studio in the kind of probably started in the, in the early 80s. In the early days, it was called it was called Sirocco, and I think Aztec Cameron had been in doing demos at one point. I think Phil Collins was up there because there was a band called Kissing the Pink or something like that for Glasgow that he produced. There was a few sort of names they got a bit of money. I think Early Simple Minds might have did some things in there right. as well. And one of the things that um, and that, that made us discover it was when we were in Irvine doing our thing and being in a various bands. Frank, who ended up. Uh, one of the uh, one of the trash cans. He what he did. He went to that studio and knocked on the door and got a trainee engineer sort of gig. So when the trash cans started writing their own songs, we could go into this Sirocco place and demo, make our little demos late at night when the downtime of the studio came. And then when we got attention and the record label signed us, we asked the guy wanted to sell the studio, and we just said to the record label, "If you're going to give us an advance, we're going to buy the studio." And they said, actually, that's a good idea because these are raw. And if you get a base where you can just work and work and work at your stuff, you know, it's, 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 uh, it ticks all the right boxes for what we think you're, the stage we think you're at. So, so yeah, we ended up making the record in, in there and just learning our, our trade as songwriters and, and arrangers in, in that brilliant, brilliant space. Amazing. And you had John Leckie producing, which was, you know, a major player really at this time. Yeah, he's, uh, what a character he is. And it's the records he'd, been involved in the magazine albums, The Fall. I think he did Simple Minds as well. He was sort of known for doing most bands' first records. Yeah. Because he's very, very good at dealing with raw, raw people and young and youth and, and full of, you know, full of confidence. He's very good at dealing with that. And and of course his own history, but I think he was involved in John Lennon records. And you know, he'd been he'd been in the, the control rooms as tape hop since the, the kind of late sixties. So it was real. He did this we loved the stuff he did with XTC as well. So that yes. was a, a major I mean we were huge fans of XTC uh, as individuals even before we got together. But um so I working with him as a treat we saw him maybe about five or six years ago we were playing a gig with uh, supporting Delamitri down at the Hammersmith Odeon. Right. John John came along just to say hello to us. We ended up just chat having a lovely a lovely time reminiscing a great great man brilliant yes because actually it's interesting when you did your second album which is mm. i've seen everything you you had another one of those producers that um which i was really surprised by you know but quite a few indie bands had the guy from gentle giant didn't they Ray, yes Ray, yes and they, they said he was absolutely fantastic to work with and i don't yeah. know where where they did the album but it probably must have been more at his studio because he said this musician and quite a few said, oh, his wife would sort of pop her head around and say, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And they went, oh, that must be good then, <laughs> which I thought was a lovely uh-huh. story. That was a lovely story, yeah. We didn't uh, we didn't work in his studio. He came up to, to our place 
and we did some things in some London studios later on. But yeah, he was fantastic to work with. We loved the. I think the thing that swung, he came in, we did, we were interviewing various uh, producers down at Goldisks. We went down for a few days and folk would come in and he was virtually the last guy that came in. And he was very childlike, very enthusiastic. But he'd just done uh, Birthday, the Sugar Croups single. Oh, right, yes. And he did uh, an Ian McCulloch solo record. Oh, And right. also he did, yeah. uh, you know, he'd been in a band and so he knew what, the, what the, all that whole dynamic was like. So we just fell in love with him, and he was up for coming up to Scotland and basing himself for a few day, a few weeks, and and it was a proper production. You know, he came in and told us that arrangement's good, but it needs shifted here, and instrumentation we can change that here. And it, you know, he really gave us a gave the whole record a cohesive sort of yes. sound. Things brilliant. He, real... he he had just done the Sundays actually, and another band right. called Ar Kane as well, which I. Yeah, and they said it was just lovely to work with him. And the Sundays thing, we'd sort of heard the Sundays demos just through Go Discs, you know, before they'd made the record. So we heard the difference of what he made from from a band's demos into an actual finished record. Yes. So we knew he was he, he had a he, he, he had a lot of input into into things, which is what we wanted. We wanted somebody to come that that would have input and make an impression rather than us. Just the first record was a little bit piecemeal. We worked with a few people in the first record. But there right. was John Lakey and Roger Bashirian was another character that worked on the first record. He probably worked on it the most. Who we he was involved in a lot of the early stiff records. Yeah. It was Costello's early albums and um, I think Nick Lowe stuff. So he was a bigger personality on the first record. John Lakey came in and mixed stuff on the first record and helped helped in a few arrangement things. Yeah, but yeah. The I, second record, by the second record, we toured a lot more, so we were a bit more confident as a band. But the material was slow in coming, and Ray really helped us, you know, choose the songs and, and arrange arrange the stuff in a in a way that was just a, hel- a real help. He got he made if you know he got us to finish the second record. It was brilliant. Yeah, really. He passed away recently, Ray, which was he did March, I think. This I know year. Well, it was really tough to, to to hear that. We got a. One of our there was a book written about our second record, and the guys that did the book went and met Ray, and they, they got a lovely conversation with him about reminiscing about his time with us. So we did sort of get a catch up with him before before he passed. So that, that I'm glad that happened. It's a lovely. It's got such amazing production and lush, lush quality yeah. to that album. Yeah, there's a kind of there's not a lot. Of, it's very. It still sounds as though it could come out today. It's one of those records. It's got a timeless sort of sound. Yes, I mean, obviously, this is kind of musically quite intriguing at this time because we then we had the the grunge sound from Seattle yeah. that was happening, and then sort of the the Britpop, the, the emergence of Britpop. So when you came to do the third album, A Happy Pocket, which was like ninety six, the John Major years, um, how, did you, <laughs> how was that? What was that like going into the nineties? Because you'd been together, funny, for quite... yeah, funny time. Both those things kind of. It affected us not in any kind of musical way, but just just in other ways. Like the grunge thing, really took over American radio, which had been friendly to us for our first record. So our scene, when we put our second record, the radio played in America didn't wasn't as as much as the first record, which was a you know it just it was it was a bit of a shock for us that that somehow this noisy, you know, aimless music was was taking over the radio and the mainstream in such a way. Yeah, there was there was some quality in it. You know, there was some really good stuff, but there was a lot of stuff that, that just I didn't think 
would ever make the mainstream, but it did. But there you go. That's that's how things. I work. think there was a fashion, wasn't there? there? Was a lot of men in check shirts with a whiskey bottle singing about problems with their stepfather, weren't there? there was yeah, a which uh, which is fine, you know, and and I'm sure they have. But for it to take over the mainstream was was like a funny one. But that, you know, that's 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 America for you. you know, there's a lot of underlying stuff going on i think with any uh, scene the original the 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 first few albums are brilliant of whatever the, those those first bands but then the other bands that come along a bit later down the line are like oh my goodness this is um we need to stop it now you know punk was the same wasn't it it was just i like, think it's the same with anything that gets into the mainstream you know the the, the accountants and the, the the that side of the music industry will just want repetition Let's repeat those figures. So get the get the repeat get somebody that's doing the similar stuff. And you know, and the musicians are never really at fault. It's just the nature of of that sort of horrible way of you know, just the short term way of way of looking at things. Yes. Um, and then yeah, never history never judges that stuff very well. But I always feel I always feel a lot of empathy for the bands. It's not their fault they were flung on the radio. You know, they can no. you know, they could have just had a little career doing their thing and and you know. And, and happy obscurities, <laughs> messing around <laughs> and making their music, rather than the stresses and strains of of somebody putting pressure on you for for some, you know, accountant type reason. Well, I reason. think, and well, also even worse, thinking that you really, you know, you you're really talented and you've got something really special. Well, you know, Kurt Cobain definitely did, but a lot of yeah. them didn't. They were just lucky. It's a bit like anybody who got into the stock exchange. And just got lucky for a bit, and and think, but but thinking deludedly that they were really good at the stock exchange, and then didn't yeah. realize there's going to be a crash. Whereas clever people know what's coming next. Whereas they just thought, oh well, this is great. I'll get myself, you know, I've got all this money. I'll get a heroin addiction. I'll do this. I'll do that. <laughs> and my, my songwriting is just going to see me through it all. And it's like, oh dear, I'm not sure that's going to be the case. No. Mm, and maybe. then you know, yeah. And then then you then they have to sort of be a bit more humble and realize they were just. They were just one of the many bands that got signed, weren't they? I think it happened with the Grateful Dead in in California, where I think when when the A and R blokes and women probably, you know, went, yeah, let's just go to California and buy sign any band, you know, regardless, yeah. as long as they look like hippies, it doesn't matter. They'll sell enough records to to pay for our you know expenses, and then quickly get dropped. And you know, the Grateful Dead will keep on, but all the other bands were like, no, just just go away, no, you you weren't that good. We just had to. Yeah, I think for some people, that's uh, it's a great thing to do with your youth is to be in a band, and then maybe you know other things will pull you away from it as as life gets more, uh, you know, serious. Yeah. So yeah. So sort of ninety six was a tricky one for the band, though, wasn't it? They, they, you know, the third album, the period, and then you know. Well, I mean, it's funny. It's when hindsight you can say tricky, but at the time we were quite prolific. We were writing lots of stuff. We still we were. Our studio was, you know, we were using it very well, and the label were still behind us. You know, they they were kind of keen for. They were a bit influenced by the Britpop thing. They tried to kind of fling our records and get them attached to that sort of stuff, which was I don't know if that was a very good idea. It was certainly wasn't good for our morale, but uh, I don't think it did the, did the sales of the records any favors. But that's the nature of record labels at the time. Personnel had changed within the label as well, and also they had they'd kind of fallen out with the American side of what they were doing. So there was a bit, there was a lot of behind the scenes sort of changes, but musically we were, we did, we were good. You know, we were, we've done a lot. We, we, we played a lot. We went everywhere. We're really proud of the album. Uh, and it was one of those records where like every single had two or three B sides that we were chuffed with. We were just very prolific at the time. 
Yes. Did you have to then sell the studio at this stage? Was that sort of... Well, that was later on. I things kind of went to pot, you know, after that. We did a lot of touring for that record, and then the, the record label said, OK, guys, it's probably probably time to, you know, knock it on the head and they'd moved on to other stuff. And we kind of persevered with the studio for a while, but then classic stuff, we got tax bills in and we had to... Just, just get, just sell it. Not sell it, but they took it off our hands. Basically, you know, we were. That's the trouble with being, you know, focused on your music and in in, a, in such a an all encompassing way. Other things can go back fall by the wayside, like how your how your tax is doing and what what money you should be putting aside and all that stuff. So that we fell into that classic old old uh, cliche of, of ignoring all that stuff. And, yes. and it, it sort of uh, you know, came to haunt us for a good few years. Oh, gosh. Yes, the, the, the Tony Blair years. It should have been so... Yes. Well, they were all right, because what he did, we ended up, like, you know, really back to square one. We were back in, in our hometowns, and, and and you know, we still, were still uh, playing and, and uh, writing stuff. And the Dole, they changed. There was a, a thing called New Deal for Musicians where we were allowed to go and sign on and, you know, tell them this is what we're doing and it was accepted, you know. So that before that came in, it was just a nightmare. You know, the door would be like, no, you have to it's, apply for 30 jobs every week, show us the stuff and go to all the interviews. And yes. We were I saying, think, well, we've got Alan... this business that we're doing, you know, and we're, we've been doing it for 10 years successfully and we want to keep it going. We're having, having a bad patch. But if we start doing all that, you know, forget it. So the the Blair years were, were good, you know. I think I think a lot of people forget about that because of the the war nonsense. But as far as being a a government that was socially useful, yeah, definitely they were they were good yes. years. Well, there was a lot of money taken, you know, um, put into the arts and and sort of funded. Yeah. And I saw I think Alan McGee was was part of that committee or in that meeting to do with driving that. That initiative yeah, I'm sure he would have been. Uh, he got up, he got up pretty high in society, and I'm sure he would have been keen for musicians to be allowed to do their thing. Yes, absolutely. Good old Alan, you go for it, Alan. Yeah, and, absolutely. I know we love him. Um, so then, weightless comes along, sort of about six years, seven years. Weightlifting. Later. Weightlifting. Did I say weightless? Yeah. I did. You did. <laughs> I. <laughs> I wish it was weightless, but no, it was weightlifting. <laughs> But the the songwriting on the album is brilliant at this stage. You know, you seem like you've, yeah. got, you've got it. You know, you've got you got it back. Well, you didn't ever lose it, but you know, it was it was good stuff. Think, actually, yeah, I think we had uh, we we got we got to a place we, before we left. In it was eight years, I think, in between the third record and the fourth record. And we did at one point try and make a record, and it ended up quite quite uh, not not a not a cheery listen. So we kind of learned the lesson of that, and and then when by the time we got to weightlifting, we had a load of record, a load of songs that we thought were, you know, they just made a nice, a good record, a good classic sort of album thing. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't of one mood. There was a lot of different styles on it, and it has our, our kind of marker quality that we're we get pretty high standards, you know, within ourselves about what we do. You know, there's a lot of stuff that that stays on the cutting room floor, yes. but when we get something that we all agree on, you know, we we all We'll go anywhere with it, you know. It's uh, or or you walk a few steps faster, and you and you know you're you're you just feel great, you know. You've got a good thing in your pocket, and that with that that record, we knew we had a belter, we knew we had a cracker that 
And it was hard fought. You know, it took us a long time to make it. We went through a lot of stuff where we made choices to stick with it. So, yeah, we're very, very proud with it. And it went. People really liked it. You know, to this day, people talk about it as a as a piece of music that they go back to and it's, it brings them a lot of solace and, and comfort. Yeah. So, yeah, glad glad we did it. Glad yeah. we made it through. And obviously you've, you've brought out in the music um, the follow-up and then... Mm a couple more albums including a live album and then you've got a new a new solo album that is is released this coming week this month october 2023 so when did um when did you decide to do a solo album i well i didn't really decide to do that i decided to do some gigs i was about i don't know maybe even about seven or eight months ago not not that long ago I just decided everything was going crazy in the country. You know, when the when the bills all started getting quadrupled and uh, just oh, everything seemed yes. to be like facing disaster. It's like, my God, everything's just gone, gone to hell in a handcart and life's going to get really, really expensive. And I thought, okay, what am I doing here? Trash cans are great. I love it. And I wouldn't, and I'll be doing it till I die. But it takes us a long time to make records and we do. It doesn't make a lot of money. And, we, you know, it takes a lot of, Organisation, there's you know, there's five guys in the band. Every a lot of them are like Davy, the bass player, he's a postman now, and Stephen's a carer, and Paul and Frank are living over in America. So there's no way we can instantly like let's make records every day and we'll go on tour all the time and we'll, we'll earn our living. We just can't do that these days. Yeah. So that that that's kind of been the the, the kind of background noise for. I don't know, a good 10 years. Then COVID happened and all that nonsense. We could still make records to the standard that we want to. There's a lot of good things these days, Patreon and things like that, where we can earn enough money to do it. We've got a decent enough audience. But as far as me, I just thought, hang on, I could could do some shows and, and, and... I've got friends that do it. They go out with their guitar and they play a circuit and they make a few quid and, you know, it brings in, it helps to pay the bills. I thought that that's a great thing. And there was another thing I was going through where I've always been writing. I'm writing all the time ever since I started back in the day. And uh, the past couple of years, it kind of, it got really tough. I wasn't really getting anywhere. I've got a little room I go to every day when I can and I'll sit with my guitar and my little record and set up and play and see what comes up and for ages there was nothing happening so that hand in hand with the world going to hell and thinking right i need to make a few quid i need to do stuff so i thought i'll I'll, I'll do gigs and at the time i was with i was out on the road with my wife eddie and she was being supported by a girl called jill jackson who does these shows and she said to me if you want to do it i'm i'm playing next week at the in greenock and another gig in here there's two support slots. Why don't you come and do them? So I thought, if I'm going to do this, just say yes. So I just said yes. And I started doing it. So I played a few shows. I was a bit nervy at the start, but eventually I started enjoying it. And then I thought, wait a minute, if I'm going to do this, I should have something that people can buy. Yes. If they, if they come to the show and they like it, I want them to be able to buy a thing. And then I thought, well, if, they want to, if they're going to buy a thing, I want it to be what the show is, just me and my guitar. Yeah. So all these sort of limit uh, criteria started arriving really quickly. So okay, I'll make a record. I'll do what I'm playing at the gigs, and I'll and I'll just limit it. No overdubs, no musicians, just me and my guitar. So I did it really quickly. The thought process has just led to it being something I could do quickly. And, yes. Um, and uh, I was chuffed with it. You know, I'd played quite a few shows. So the songs that I chose, 
there's some trash can songs that I either had a lot to do with or or I just really you know I could play them well on my guitar and, and sing them well. So that kind of led to quite a bit of the material. I've written a couple of new songs. There's a cover, cover or two. There's one cover on the album. I recorded a bunch of stuff, just stuff that I liked playing, and I thought I could. And I, I'd, 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 I'd changed enough, and to, I'd made them my own kind of thing, just by sitting on my guitar and, and beginning to enjoy my own voice. So I was. That that's what led to the record, really. All of those things. Yes, um, absolutely. Because yeah, one of the covers on the album was was of uh, the fantastic prefab sprout when when yes. when let, we let the stars go, which was a great song actually. So do, so so what was the? Were you always a fan of the band, or did you? Yeah, well, they were one of those bands that from the very first album, which came out. I don't know when that was. That mid eighties or something, mid to late eighties. Yeah, I, I adored them. And then back in the day when trash when the trash cans were bringing out, I think it was our first album. Yeah. They just brought out Jordan, and, and we toured with them, so we got to know them a little. Right, uh, not so much Paddy. Paddy was was never really hang out, but we got to know to know Martin, the bass player, and, and Neil, the drummer, and, and Wendy a little bit, just for that tour. You know, I wouldn't say we you know, we didn't, we weren't huge friends, or but we got to know them a little bit. Yeah. And I, I just always loved the records. And I, there was a few times in those eight years between uh, our third and fourth records, I, I would go busking just to earn a few quid. And, I, and I, one of the songs I did was uh, We Let the Stars Go. And it was always, every time I played it, guys around about my age would stop, you know, and just close their eyes and just listen, listen to it. You know, so it's a, I think it's a big song for a, for a certain age. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> of, of fella, you know, even... If you're a big Free Fast Sprout song, that really stands out. It's such a personal reminiscence song that a lot of people, I mean, I really connected with it. We've all got sort of old flames that, that we look back on fondly. And it's it's just one of those, it's a sort of universal universal theme and, and a great melody and all that. So I had been playing it for a while, so it was a kind of easy for me to, to, to just go in and play that and get a nice nice recording of it. Yes. I, I think, think recently we're a... Martin Martin Macklin has been going out on the road in some shows, doing a kind of similar thing to me, just just getting out there, not having done it before. And he's no, he's like myself, you know, he's a bit long in the tooth to start doing something. But was, I found it really refreshing, and to do something refreshing at my age is, is very healthy. Yeah. <laughs> so absolutely. he started doing some shows, and he and he played it. He played at the my hometown in Irvine, like his second show or something. And he'd seen me doing that song on YouTube somebody filmed me in Dublin doing We Let the Stars Go and you knew I was from Irvine so he asked the, the local promoter guy says is, is John around is he in town and I was up in Glasgow and they, they does a, he does two sets and in the break before the gig the guy phoned me and says would you come and do it come and get down here for half time and come and sing it with Martin <laughs> so I was like yeah I drove down from Glasgow and, and you know reconnected with Martin we talked a little bit about the Jordan things and within 10 minutes I was singing with him on stage Fantastic. so it was a, it's quite a strange sort of thing you know he started doing this thing where he's been in a band for ages and they're not on the road anymore so he's decided to go and do them himself and what was his sur- exactly I got his sur- first name Martin who what's his surname Martin McElwain it's Paddy's brother oh right yes yeah there's so, so yeah he's been in he, he kind of knows the songs inside out. It's a lovely show. If you get the chance to go and see him, he's 
he's, he's fantastic. He's like, he, he starts the show by saying, like, everybody in this room, I know you love Prefab Sprout and you love the songs, but no one loves them as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> so you're instantly on his side. So it's brilliant, yes. a brilliant show. Yeah, yeah, well, I I was, I was, it was Steve, the Steve McQueen album that I remember oh, yeah. seeing him and sort of going to the UEA and seeing that concert. And it was, you know, yeah. I have to say, side one, I, oh, I, quite, I, I quite like side two, but side one was just per- perfect, really. Yes, so, I'm with you there. I'm with you there. I say to, there's a song called Blueberry Pies and say to that I really love the side one. Yeah, it's fantastic. Absolutely. It always got it. Yeah. So with the with the songs that you've got, I mean, it's got quite a reflective, melancholic kind of vibe through it, hasn't it? It starts yeah. with a track called Lost, I Want to Go Home. Yeah. Then you do a, a a trash can song, Weight Weightlifting. And uh, yeah, so yeah. there's quite there's quite a sort of a, a sense of, you know, kind of um, heavy, not heaviness, but a certain a feeling of of sort of introspection. Yeah, I mean that's. I didn't really plan that. I didn't really. There was been no yeah no big ideas behind it, no big concept except as I said earlier, yeah, just do what I'm doing. And and I was really pleased with the, the result. There's a mood to it, you know. To the whole thing, there's a bit, there's kind of different styles of song in, in there, but there's there's a, there's a general mood to the whole thing just from the sound of the guitar and and my voice, I think. And I, and I, and I think when I listened to it later, and a few people said to me the same things, this is real, you put it on, there's just a mood that arrives for the next 40 minutes that's, you know, it's got it's got a thing. Yes. And I was I was pleasantly surprised by that. I'm, I'm you know, I'm quite a quiet fella. Uh, um, so the album kind of reflects me. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know if I'd call it melancholy. I don't know, introspective, I'd go with that. Yeah, I'm yes. introspective. Well, there was a track, anyway. the track, your fourth track, um, mm. Orange Crayons, which is a really yeah. lovely sentiment about your primary school days. And um, yes, yeah. catching catching a, a, a young girl's eyes. Um, yes, yeah. just, yes. And, and sort of reminiscing about what sort of primary schools were like in our day with free milk and, you know, being very scared to talk to girls and things like that. And yeah. um, yes, it, it has a it has a really nice sentiment to it. Well, I'm glad you like that. It was one of the, that I wrote that that was that nearly made it onto a trash can record, but never. But I've always I've always kind of loved what it captured. To us, very sort of personal, you know, those things. But they're, they're universal. You know, everybody my age would know those those touchstones of free school and shyness, and free, free milk and, <laughs> and shyness. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's, uh, I don't know, I, I, like, I like a lyrical sort of depth. Yes. You know? and, uh, but try and make it as conversational as, as I can and poetic as I can. And, and then another track, which is Oranges and Apples, which is, again, mm. kind of a delightful song. But this is your tribute to Sid Barrett as well. So was was Sid somebody that you used to um, listen to a lot? Um, it's a big, a big sort of, it's one of those things where you don't listen. To, I didn't listen to him a lot, but it blows your mind the first time you hear him. It's like, my God, suddenly there's a new colour. Suddenly there's a new thing that you can that you can do that you did that wasn't there before. You know, there's shades of sort of Lewis Carroll and there's shades of sort of, you know, jazz. And, and it's just him and his approach and his Englishness. You know, it's just a mad uh, yes. that character. And did, but the, the, the did, and did his life of, you know, like this this well, kind of kind of fragile but beautiful, you know, person who was almost too fragile for for all the things that were about to happen and then what well, happens to I don't to know. Him? I mean 
I found it a bit. I always thought there was a bit of mythology behind that, and the more I kind of looked into it, and I got to know a few of the characters. Uh, Pete Jenner, who was the early Floyd manager and and Sid's manager when he left, he managed the trash cans for a while, and uh, I got to know his sort of working methods, and um, and then thinking back to the sixties and the more I read about things, the very, very sort of the record companies and the pressure from record companies very very sort of military in nature. It's great if you're up for it and if you're pro- prolific enough, like your your McCartney's of the world who can bring out, you know, there'll be a new single every three months and there'll be an album every year, maybe two albums a year. But if, you're, if your influences are, when Sid, the, the little we know of, of what he says, his influences were jazz and, you know, Thelonious Monk and things like that. So repetition wasn't on the cards. It was about just create when it comes out of you that's it done move on to the next thing so I don't think he was he fitted very well with the sort of military just gig just keep gigging just keep bringing out records that are the same as the one that was a hit yeah his, his mentality would have been nowhere near attracted to that so it's, I'm not surprised that he became sullen and wasn't he bothered about being in the band anymore and the rest of them were quite ambitious cats <laughs> so I, I think yes. I think the I think the, the the pattern of the ways was a bit more down to earth than any sort of crazy. I, I, you know, I'm sure they were all indulging in, in the substances of the time, and uh, but I think there's more today with just like you know, a parting of the ways was on the cards at all times with them. The more the more I read about them, but the thing that uh, that inspired the song was nothing to do with that. The thing that inspired the song was when Sid passed away. His sister Rosemary had a. An auction of the stuff that was in his house. He lived in Cambridge in a little, you know, I think it was like an ex-council house. Yeah, nothing, nothing bigger, grand or anything. So she sold off his uh, to raise funds for a, a, a mental health charity. It was all the all the money went to charity, but she had this auction, and online you could go and see the catalogue of the stuff, uh, and it was all everything had been adjusted by him. It was very quite sparse stuff. Like he's he had a little sort of high street uh, Sanyo music center, little silver thing with two speakers. But he took off he taken off the the grills of the speakers and painted painted little paintings on them and put them back on. And his drawers, he had a little chest of drawers, and he took the knobs off and put things on so that it looked like a little winking face. <laughs> and his his wheelbarrow in the garden that he got for the you know the Dobie's garden center, he painted it all different colours. Pretty much every single high street normal bit of furniture he'd adjusted to his own little little way. And I just I just I just fell in love with that. It's like my God, this guy's to his dying day was taking things and making them his own. Wasn't going out and you know making a career of it or, or none of that stuff. But he certainly followed his his path of being a creative and he, he was a painter his whole life and he would paint things and then burn the paintings because he didn't really bother the process was the thing that interested him. Yes, I'd, so I'd, I'd heard about the paintings. I didn't realise the, the there was an auction. Actually, I didn't. Um... Yeah, it's fabulous. I mean, I don't know if you can still access the online catalogue of stuff, but it was. And and there was a guy in Scotland actually. One of the a journalist went to the auction, bought his 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 painting desk, and uh, and uh, when I the the song oranges apples oranges and apples is on a trash can record called in the music. We did a lovely version of it. It's brilliant, really big beautiful guitar solo on it and really gorgeous sort of autumnal vibe to it and uh, when that album came out one of the Glasgow papers I told him I was doing an interview and I told him the story about what inspired the song and he knew 
he says one of the reporters on the paper was a big Sid fan. He went to the auction and bought his desk. You should meet him and we'll do an article about it. So I met this guy and he and he, he opened up the, the it was like a just like a little plain wooden desk. But he opened up and there was some paints there and I said, Do you want one? <laughs> yeah, so he gave me a little brown sienna tube of, of Sid Barrett's paint, which I've got in the house now to this day. So I've, I've got something that through the process of writing a song inspired by his lovely the things he left behind, I ended up with one of them in my in my house. <laughs> that's quite <laughs> beautiful. Um, it was really beautiful. Yes, that's such a nice. I'm amazed David Bowie didn't buy any because he he was yeah because Bowie was a really massive collector. But I can't remember what year what year mm. Sid died and um, yes, what I know what year David Bowie died. But um, yeah, I would have oh, thought that was heartbreaking. Yeah, it was it was too shocking for words. But yes, yeah. there you go. I mean, so with this uh, with the album that that's about to come out. So have you got live dates coming coming up? Uh, yeah, I'm planning that just now. I've, I've only recently there's things you have to. I've, I've only recently got an agent who's who's, who's beginning to organise shows for for next year. And I've got a there's a brilliant uh, band called Withered Hand that that offered me some support. So I'm doing four dates with them in October but it'll be next year where I'll be able to do some proper shows every show I've done so far has been a support show so I've only played I can fill 45 minutes with right. songs and a bit of blather so I'm going to spend the next little while in between now and Christmas just working up some other things and hopefully writing some more things and next year I'll be able to do a proper Yes, proper run of shows, and will and has the band got any plans for the yes? Future? Is is there yes. anything cooking? Yeah, we're kind of mid mid making a record at the moment. With Frank, the singer, was over in Scotland. He lives in America, and Paul, the guitar player, lives in America. We're all writers, you know. Everyone chips in writing to the songs, and because those two guys live in America, we've been doing a lot of stuff kind of online. You know, we'll send MP3s to each other and. There's the three band members that are in Scotland are is myself and Stephen on drums and Davy on the bass and we we'll, we can rehearse as a unit and we we rehearse and we'll record our stuff and send it to the guys in the states and they'll say that's good that could be stretched or slow that down a bit or let's move that section so we'll do that for years and eventually we get to a place where we've got time we we can we feel as though we can book into a studio and get things done. And I've started doing that. We, we had a session a couple of months ago. I mean, it was a yeah. We did. We started a bunch of songs, and there'll be another one, hopefully in November. And the plan is to have a record. I'm getting maybe autumn or summer next year. So yeah, yeah. we're always writing and doing stuff. Yeah, so it's, we're, we're pretty pretty excited about what we've done so far. That's fantastic. I mean, if you could have whispered yeah. something to your like 16-year-old self starting out, is there any words of wisdom <laughs> that you would think, oh, yes, I would have told them that, even if that person ignored you? Oh, I don't know, 16, I'd say. I'd probably, I'd probably whisper, get a guitar and easier. Don't wait till you're 21, get it when you're 16. <laughs> and I'd also inform them that there's music in the family. My mother and father didn't really know much. Uh, we were, it was, uh, my granddad was from Ireland and he died very young. It turns out his family over in Connemara have got songwriting and musical uh, members of the family that go back generations. But I never really knew that growing up in Scotland. I, I just right. felt like I felt like it was kind of weird that I was into music so much. I didn't really know why. It was like a driving force for me it, over and above anything, say like schoolwork or anything. It would just take me over. And 
that that guided my life. And and now that I know there was the, the, there was a lot of music in the family generationally, I kind of I don't feel so mad now. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite good. Yes, that's a good good, good thing. Good thing mm. to discover when you get old. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not mad. <laughs> not mad yes, I just wondered if there was anything else. Was Pete Jenner your the manager of the band for for most of those early years? No, no, that was kind of later on when when we were our original manager was a friend from from our kind of area who was a guy that would put on shows, right? A, pro- a promoter, and he was the only guy that we knew that was doing stuff musically that wasn't a musician and could organise things. So he, 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 his name was Jim, and he was brilliant for the first few years. And then as as we got other people involved, like the, the Bluebells ex manager came and did Mark Wilson. He did he he managed us for years and great as well. And Pete came in. It was only maybe four or five months he was he was around us, but we were too slow for him. I think <laughs> we weren't as productive as as you know we should have been. I don't know if we should have been, but certainly weren't as productive as the bands that he was used to working with. And, yes, you know, I, I, I've always enjoyed hearing his interviews because he's oh, it's fantastic. He's brilliant on the sixties, and he often talks about the. The fourteen-hour Technicolor Dream at the Alley Pally in nineteen sixty-seven. Oh, he's it's so amazing. He was in the studio when the Doors were doing Riders on the Storm. Right. He lived in he lived in LA at that period when all that was kicking off. So he, I, I mean, the book he writes would be would be amazing. The memories he's got, and of course they did the Clash and all that. Billy Bragg's manager for years, as well as the old, you know, the sixties stuff. So he's, he's kind of went through so many. So many shifts in music and so many seminal figures. Yeah, he, he's he's definitely one one to listen to. Yes, it will be. Yes, he should write a book or at least have a documentary. Do uh, do yeah. you at the moment have a, a manager or do you are you sort of just amongst yourselves? Uh, we've got yeah, we've got a, a few things that are going on. There's a, there's a guy called Joe that kind of helps us do all our admin stuff and runs our website. There's a kind of an overseeing guy that we've got in America that that uh, that when 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 a record comes out is 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 on hand to to organise and oversee stuff. And me doing my solo stuff. There's a there's a guy called Tom Rose that runs Review Records. He he manages my my kind of solo stuff. He'd been a fan of. He'd been kind of egging me for years to do a solo record, and it never mm-hmm. ever felt right until until recently. He was always a fan of, of the songs that I write. So um, when I finally did decide to do it, I just went straight to him and said, "Would you be, would you be up for it? if I'm going to do this? I want to do it right. Would you be up for for mm-hmm. doing it?" And it's been a, it's been great. Because you've been quite prolific this year, because you did um, the reissue of um, quite a few records, even and and Cake came out as well, didn't it? In February, sort of a, was that a reissue as well? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them came out. There, there, there's a label in Glas- Glasgow called Last Night from Glasgow. Oh the, God! I've, I keep coming across this because, um, yeah, lots of people haven't. I think that was oh God, what's the band? The Soup Dragons. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So they they seem to be doing. They they must be. They don't sleep, do they? They seem to be doing so much stuff. No, they're they're, they're full on. They've got they've got a lot of stuff on the plate. Mostly, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of the re-release side, but they do put out um, you know new new music as well from from current bands as well. But the the They've treated us really well as far as the, you know, the the quality of what they do. The packaging's great. The mastering's great. You know, the the sort of PR side of it's been great, and the standard of the the vinyl and all that. They're real enthusiasts, and that's that goes a million miles. Enthusiasm. 
Yes, absolutely. And we love archiving, so I think that's always important, isn't it, really? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah you, you definitely. And did, and did you get many orders for the book that came out? Because you also did a 52-page book of the, of the band and the interviews. Was that, was that a success? Uh, I think it was more than 52 pages. <laughs> there was a big... Oh, no, wait, they knew the blue thing. There was two books. There was one book for I've Seen Everything, which was a big, chunky book full of interviews and photographs and really, you know, top-notch quality hardback. Uh, book and then there was a sort of more fanzine based one that came out with the happy pocket record yeah yeah i think it's sold out i think the both of those have have been that went down really well with people that are that are interested in in those records yeah they're good sort of in depth you know they give you a lot of information about you know the figures that were in the kind of back room side of it as well as as well as our kind of thoughts on the songs and the the where we were at at the time they're fun to do you know to reminisce i wouldn't want to live there but no to go no. back and have a couple of days of just thinking about it and, and saying your piece and somebody documenting it well is it's a good it's a good thing to know that that's there forever. yeah absolutely this is this is good but look thank you ever so much john this has been brilliant and um and i'll send oh, the... thank you yeah, no, that's been brilliant. No, I'm glad you managed to get home yesterday after your... Uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, hate, I do hate driving now. Um, but yeah, I'm okay good. with driving. I find, I find quite a zen thing to do. You know, as long as I'm not rushing to get anywhere. Touring, I'm, I'm, I'll always volunteer to drive. And I'll just you know, put on music or a podcast and just relax into the, into the day. And before you know it, I'm somewhere else. I, I, do yes. like, I do like it. But not for everyone. It's not for everyone. <laughs> but no, but thank you ever so much. And I love the album. So I really hope um oh, maybe you get you. a good a good tour around the country because it'd be great if you come towards East Anglia, which would be good. Well if I if I'm heading that way, you need, you need to come say hello. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to uh yeah, love to. I mean, to be honest, there's a lot of artists now who a bit like yourself who've been in a band and mm. just realize they the band might still be happening but they would like to just go and still be more a bit like stevie nicks in fleetwood mac they want to still yeah. keep working a bit harder than everyone and it's too complicated so they think well i'm just going to do my solo stuff and it's interesting how many solo artists have just you know if they can get the guitar and they can play the guitar and they can stand there they just think this works i'm going for it yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's as I said earlier, I find it very refreshing. It's like starting a, an apprenticeship. You know, when I'm knocking on the door of sixty, it's, it's a whole new skill. You know, chatting away and introducing the songs and setting the tone for the songs, and as well as just arranging the songs for the guitar and discovering what my voice is like over forty-five minutes. You know, where it can go and yes, yeah, it's definitely a, a very refreshing. Very refreshing. You, don't have to, you don't have to look at the drummer trying to set up. <laughs> well, I mean that has its pleasures, but <laughs> yes, not every day. I know. I always remember. Was it bad news or more bad news? Where you know, I don't know if you saw those the comic strip where. Oh yeah, they were great. Bad news at ten. They said something like, you know, why does it take you ten hours to set up the drum kit, Spider? Anyway, <laughs> there you go. So, <laughs> at least oh, you don't have that. to worry about that. It's just a guitar, one man yeah, guitar. I mean, yeah, I'm not going to. I'm not going to play that down. To travel light is is a treat, absolutely. <laughs> and that, dear listener, is a um, subtle edit. And also, at the end of the interview, a massive thank you to John Douglas um, of the Trash Can Sinatras, and also has got this new solo album that we were talking about. I'll give you the link in the notes below on Bandcamp. How you can get a copy? Um, it's 11 tracks, but there are also two bonus tracks as well. So um, anyway, uh, I'll probably try and sort of find if he's got a website as well. 
So a massive thank you to John. Uh, this has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And all these interviews have been archived. Indeed, aren't you lucky? Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.